0: Um, you might know me. You probably don't. I'm Grant. Grant Palma. Um, I've been around for a few years. Back in May, I uh, talked about my mental health and what that's looked like through the years. And uh, last week, Joe made direct eye contact with me when he started asking for somebody to raise their hand. So I did, because, you know, <laughs> I need to get out more. I could stand to do more public speaking. It's been, I don't know, year and a half? Pandemic? So not doing that as much, but um, I wanted to not talk as much directly about mental health this time, as important as that is, um, but kind of just share about who I am for a minute. Um, so like I said, my name's Grant, My Grant's wish. I was named for the president and for my grandmother's maiden name for whatever reason. Um, I don't know. I was born in September, so happy birth month. Uh, share it with Finn, so that's cool. Um, I have my own apartment. It is still interesting. That's its own story. I uh, have a cat, and he bites the ever living snot out of my hands and feet, um, which is very fun for him and very messy for me. <laughs> uh, what else? Glasses. I got glasses. I like my hat. Um, I paint. I painted spray paint. I don't know. I painted for the church for a bit. I painted in Athens when I was a student. Uh, I want to paint again. So if you need something spray painted, or you don't, but you feel like getting it spray painted anyways, I'm around. I am a not quite graduated student, not quite student. I work in IT. Um, When I was growing up, and I was probably like six or seven, my family stopped taking me to church. And then a few years later, I found a random church and started going to it. Yeah? Yes. I am so sorry. Yeah. I didn't want to bother Angela with uh, fixing the mic later, but that's on me. So I'll try again. Found a church, found some like-aged kids, did it for a bit, went to college, Realized that I didn't agree with it as much as I thought I did. Found Central in Athens, which was cool. Failed college, which was less cool. Um, But uh, pretty much since actually that same time when Central City was getting planted, I've started to try to figure out more what faith actually looked like to me. And it's changed a lot. From uh, one of the... Interns helping church, church the plant, plant the church. um, Talking about Jonah and talking about the discussion of the men on the boat heading to the Iberian Peninsula, to Spain and Portugal. um, Being scared because it was Jonah's God, Yahweh, the God, uh, after them. Which was interesting because it was like... Other gods could have been doing it. I don't know. I'm kind of, like I said, I'm just kind of rambling. But that's kind of what I do, is word vomit. And um, I don't know. I think it's the best way to share myself, honestly, is just to word vomit. I, uh, I have ADHD and the depression. And I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with it or live with it. Which is interesting because now I'm trying some other stuff. I don't know. Still more rambling. But faith. Anyone ever said that you're just lazy or you can pray it away? It kind of hurts to hear that. I don't think anyone here would say that. But growing up was a lot harder to hear that. Because you're a kid. And that's not to knock anyone, but they thought it was right and it hurt. I didn't know what to think. Sometimes I still don't. But that's okay. You know? You don't need every answer. You don't need to know everything. And partly itself, that's why I'm winging it. Because so often I want to have a speech, I want to pre plan what I have to say. I want a script. I want something in front of me in bold, in like 20 point font, so I don't have to lose track. But then that's the refined, polished kind of public facing me um, when the rest of me is just kind of scared and chaotic and sometimes on fire because. Spray paint. Um, I was talking about faith for a second, <laughs> like Angela was saying, figuring out what is learned and what is God. That's been on my heart too since I started coming to Central City, which, ironically, is probably perfect because Joe gave me a little insider secret. That's uh, in a way what he's talking about: figuring out what is and isn't God. Or godly, which is cool. I never wanted to go anywhere else for church. I came back from Athens and I'd been coming to Central City anytime I wasn't there and it just made the most sense. It honestly makes me really happy. As hard as it's been the last year and a half, two years, it makes me really happy to see people here, people online, anyone that might listen another time however far that is from Columbus, Ohio. It's really cool to think about. So in that chaos of mine, it kind of makes me think again about everyone out there. I just hope that you're doing okay. Because it's hard to do okay without really checking in on yourself or others. So, I don't know. I just wanted to check on you, I guess. Hope you have a good day. Thanks.
1: Hey, this mic's working now. That's great. Good news all around. Thank you, James. Um, thank you, Grant. You know, every every week we're creating space. This is a new rhythm for us, for people to share their story, and and um, we we provide a little handout, and it kind of is just very permission giving. So, thank you so much, Grant, for sharing, and for everyone who's shared so far. And uh, we, this is the part of the service where i ask if someone's going to do it next week. But friends, we have someone sign up for next week. Can you believe that? And for the next two weeks. So uh, next week, we'll get to hear from our very own Matt Ratliff, who's our administrator. He's going to come share his story. And and then I think Angela is going to share her story next. And so there is still spots left in the year, if you're willing to come and just share. Uh, we're going to create a spot every week for just a five-minute story. And it can be, as we've seen, uh, quotes from a song. You can play your bass, do Amazing Grace, uh, like last week, or, or uh, just share a little bit of your heart. And uh, so anyways, new sermon series today. Horrible Bible stories. We're going to be looking over the next couple of weeks at Bible stories that you uh, don't read to your children. Uh, you know, uh, you know the ones violent Old Testament passages, God commanding people to go to war, to kill their enemies, slaughter, genocide, the flood, these types of things. There are a number of stories that can be challenging to understand that are. Are rated quite honestly. We'll be looking at a few of those stories. We'll be trying to handle them appropriately. Um, but they're in the Bible, so we're going to look at them. we got to wrestle with them, because I, I know that people struggle with this. Um, and uh, a number of that are really hard to show. In fact, I'm wondering, when I mention violent, difficult, horror passages in Scripture, are there any that come to mind? Or any that stand out? What comes to mind? You can just say... Noah's Ark. Yeah. We love putting that on like kids classrooms and stuff and i'm like you know that's like maybe maybe not child appropriate there guys what else comes to mind all of judges we're looking at two passages on judges in this series so you are absolutely right judges is a bloodbath it really i mean it it is what else david and goliath yeah that's a pretty intense little guy any others stand out? Yes! That's today's lesson. The, the lady who stabs a tent peg through a guy's head. Just gave the climax away, friends. That's where we're headed today. It's in the Bible, so we're going to look at it. It's actually going to be really great. Today's going to be fun. Future weeks might be a little harder, but today's going to be fun. Well, we can't look at all of these. There's others you could do, but we'll look at three in this series that will hopefully help you process and learn some things and how to read some other passages We'll look at three passages, They're not, and not all violence is equal, so we're looking at three different kinds of violent stories. One of those stories, the ones we'll look at today, the violence is presented as almost cool, uh, epic. Um, and while I'm not a fan of violence necessarily in any form, that's how it's presented. It's kind of like a, a John Wick, die-hard, Kill Bill kind of story, right? So it's presented, I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying it's presented as kind of cool. The next story we'll look at next week is, is almost ridiculous. I mean, the violence is just over the top, it's almost silly, it's kind of laughable, uh, not violence isn't appropriate to laugh at but that's just how it's being presented so we you know we all we're going to deal with it how it's presented it's kind of similar to some of the fables you might read out of germany you know the one where the kids go up to the the candy house like you do, i mean in the original story, it's like, it's pretty, like, I think they get baked, right? So it's like pretty, gra- like, not a great story for kids, but um, unless you want to scare them uh, into obe- obeying. But, but um, or it's similar to like those sort of B rated horror films that are almost as funny as they are horrible. The last story, though, which we'll look at after our community Sunday, second Sunday in October, um, we'll, we'll get to the second week in October, is it's not funny, it's not cool, um, it's traumatic, it's, um, it deals with abuse. Um, it views with the kind of abuse that in that in many ways is still very relevant today And so that story will be handled very differently very tenderly uh, very carefully um, It's more like a documentary or a drama one of those movies that you watch and you're just like oh, is there any good left in the world? Like that's so dramatic, so that's where we're headed And the question I have to ask is why? Well, honestly, I love – if you know anything about me, I love studying and reading and preaching on obscure passages in the Bible. I find it interesting. I find it fun to do. Uh, So this series is in my wheelhouse. Uh, I love it. Now, pastorally, I know that uh, from talking to many people here who've read the Bible, grew up the Bible, learning about the Bible, there's some real struggle happening with some of the things we read in the Bible. Like, what in the world do I do with this? So I think it's good, it's right, it's appropriate to spend a couple weeks wrestling with some of these stories so that we can have some tools about how to deal with passages like this in other parts of the Bible. So, but that isn't the only reason. Here, here's also the truth. We still live in a violent world. The world's still violent. And we all have to find ways to process the news and the stories of abuse and pain and war. So I think it's helpful to spend some time with some violent passages. We have, certainly don't want to be a church that shuts the doors and says, "Ah, we're just going to pretend like life isn't hard, you know, that stuff doesn't happen. That people aren't getting hurt. Don't want to think about it." Cuz they are getting hurt and things still happen and it's hard and we got to wrestle with it. So, finally, the violence aside in these stories oftentimes isn't even the point especially in this passage Uh, these stories offer these rich perspectives and really important lessons that still apply today so we're gonna look at one such passage we're gonna ask ourselves what does it have to teach us Uh, but before we do i want to offer you just a little bit of uh, help here Um, and uh, to help you reflect on and work through your relationship with text like this. So you should have gotten a handout, and you know what, I don't have a handout, so if someone in the back could, oh, yeah, perfect. Hook me up. I meant to have one. I'll give you this little handout. You can also get it online at centralcity.co slash handout, so if you don't have it with you, you could look it up on your phone. Uh, I found this. I think it's helpful. Um, uh, I think it's a good summary of some of the ways that we can interact with violent or morally questionable passages in Scripture. We're not going to go through all of these, but I want to look at a couple. There's a, really just a list of eight different ways people have dealt with these kinds of passages and in Scripture in general. So the handout came from a United Methodist resource. So it first references in the opening paragraph this thing called the quadrilateral, which is a fancy term that not everyone agrees with, but it's really not complicated. We'll spend more time with this at another time, but I'll summarize it here. Basically, when we wrestle with matters of faith, we try to take into account four things. Scripture, of course, but also reason. You know, we are given brains for a reason, and we need to use them. We highly encourage that here um, in general and in life. Um, uh, But also experience. We believe that God is real, that God is still working, that God is still speaking, and and our experience of God and our experience of other people should shape our view of faith. And then finally, tradition. We are try not to be so arrogant is to say that i know better than people who've been christians before me so i want okay how did people in the past wrestle with this sort of thing so we we wrestle with it with using scripture primarily and then we wrestle with scripture using our reason and our experience and what people have done and said before us and i think that can be helpful so we'll dig in in this you know with that in mind here are some different approaches you can you can use when struggling with difficult passages the first one listed is what they call the evolutionary approach The general idea here, and you can follow along, I'll just look at a couple, is that humanity is slowly getting better, that it's less brutal. You know, the Hebrew Bible was written during violent times, so back then we weren't as healthy as we are now. And so the Bible tells us of people who were tribal, violent, but we've learned better, like we've progressed, we've evolved. Um, And then it lists pros and cons. So the pro of this perspective is that we can kind of separate modern people from the violence of the past and allows us to reject that violence we find in Scripture. The downside of this perspective is it assumes that the New Testament or our modern faith is the culmination of the Hebrew Bible, and so things keep getting better and better, and the Old Testament is outdated, and this can lead to anti-Semitic understandings of Scripture. But also you need to know that this perspective is really central to colonialism. Um, This idea that our culture is more advanced than your primitive culture, and so we know better. So that same sort of philosophy was used in colonialism. I like this handout because it doesn't just briefly explain these different ways of wrestling with the text, but offers these pros and cons. So look at one more. Uh, skip to number three. This is a very popular way of reading the text called the canon within a canon approach. This is the one that uh, people will critique a lot uh, uh, on one branch of Christianity. And this one, we believe that some parts of the Bible have authority and reflect the divine will, and others don't. And so we pick and choose which passages matter or which... Have something to teach us, right? So you've heard this probably talked about in one way or the other. Well, here's the pro: you can just throw out the passages that are difficult and uh, don't you don't have to deal with them. <laughs> like, that sounds great. <laughs> Let's do that. And quite frankly, we've all done that at times. Times like I just don't understand it. It's just I'm not gonna. I'm not even gonna read it. I don't memorize it. We we all do it in the sense that like um, we're more likely to have memorized John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son and you memorize that and you live by that, you allow that to impact your life, then the story we're gonna look at today where someone stabs someone in the head with a tent peg, like that's not a model for your life. So we're doing it on some level, we're picking and choosing which ones can speak into our lives. So that's one way to do it. The con of course is that the passages we pick versus the ones that we don't probably say more about us than than anything because we can pick and choose. So you can look through that, there's a number of other different resources. Um, I. Uh, i'm not going to read the rest of them if this is useful keep it if it isn't there's probably a recycling bin somewhere you're not going to hurt my feelings Uh, but you can also find it online um with that uh we're going to read this passage and i encourage you to ask yourself what which one is joe using you know how how am i interpreting this passage so with that we're going to spend some time in god's word we're going to dig into judges chapter four so you can follow along on the screen You can look it up on your phone, but Judges chapter 4, we're going to deal with a difficult passage and see what God has to say to us today. Here's what it says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Caesarea, Caesarea, Uh, Remember that name, Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosoth, I can't even say that word, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. All right, so that's a lot of complicated language. Here's what's going on. There's the cycle in judges. God delivers them. The person that God uses is often like Yehud, it's a It's a judge. Um, But that person that God delivers grows old and dies, or or something else happens to him, and so people forget, and they mess up, and and, and then they God allows the enemies to come and attack them and overcome them and they cry out for help and then God hears them and God delivers them sending them another leader and then that leader moves on and they fall into sin again and it's a cycle right it's over and over this what the book of judges is it's a cycle the spinning wheel over and over again this is a metaphor for our life we're like oh God I've messed up and I cry out to you and you get right with God and you fall away like if, if you're not experiencing that cycle you're probably not following God because that's just how the cycle works it just kind of spins and spins and spins it's not great but that's reality and that's what's happening Happening here over and over again now this is important um, that this keep we're gonna get back to this This cycle this this spinning thing around and around where they cry out for help God comes to the rescue in the book of judges through a judge that's how we get the name the book of judges now judges were either military leaders or arbiters of, of disagreements something similar to what we would have as a judge you know somebody who listens to two parties and makes rulings So either way, God would deliver them through these leaders called judges, which takes us to verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lipithoth, was leading Israel at that time. So we meet our judge, who is a prophet, but also a woman. An important part of this story, by the way, uh, a woman named Deborah. Now, today, we're going to look at a story that eventually leads into some over-the-top violence, but it's also a story that's about women in leadership. So you better believe that we're going to talk about women in leadership today. That's what this passage is ultimately about. So verse 5, she held court. I love this. She's a leader of Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. She had her own palm tree named after her, between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim. and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So she's serving Like a judge. So we know she was not necessarily the the military kind of judge, but more like one of judges we would think. So just for reference, in America, the first female judge at the federal level was appointed in 1928. But over 3,000 years ago, there's a story of Deborah, Israel's primary leader, People are going to, who's, who's judging Israel, who's serving as a judge, the one leading Israel at the time. So you could say America was a little late to the game, you know, in regards to, like, female leadership. Just a little, like, a little bit late to the game in appointing a female judge. So more on that later. Verse 6. So 6, she went to Barak, son of Abibinan, from Kedesh to Nephela. And I just got to say, evolutionary perspective of reading scripture, things gotten better. Last name so much better than this, in my opinion. I'm like, this is just a long title, and I can't even say half these words. You know, it's just like Barack Obama. Like, that's easy. Barack, son of a from Keresh. Uh, uh, anyways, so she's speaking to this guy named Barack, and she said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Now, this is the Lord speaking. Go take with you 10,000 men of Nephelah and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabar. I will lead Caesarea. Uh, the the general of the enemy army, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. So Deborah says to to her general, she's the leader of Israel at the time. She has a general that's under her. She says, go wage war with our enemies. Now, of course, we know that Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that in the Old Testament it's filled with people of Israel just Fighting and killing and slaughtering their enemies. When later God's like, love your enemies. Even to the point of dying on a cross, he said, Love your enemies. Well, you can go back to the sheet, the resource that I gave you, and you can wrestle with it with some of those different perspectives. I tend to think of it like this: We know we shouldn't fight our enemies. We should love them. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. In fact, I think it's what makes our faith the most compelling. It's the most compelling concept in our faith. It's the very crux of the, of the crucifixion of Jesus choosing to hang on a cross and saying from the cross as he's being hung, Father, forgive me. They know not what they do. It's, this is the crux of our faith. And so that's what I know. I know. So I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these passages are not prescriptive. Amen? These are not passages that God is saying, I want you to do this as well. Um, they aren't telling me what I should be doing at least at face value. I'm not sure which category they fit into in the handout, uh, but they are not telling me to go fight my enemies. They are telling me what people did, and I don't fully understand why. I have some ideas. Many of them are summarized on the handout. Sometimes I think that this was just how things were. People were tribal and they fought. This was 3,000 years ago. That's one of the perspectives. Sometimes I think, well, it's, it's complicated. They were being oppressed and their enemies maybe deserved it. That's one of the perspectives on the sheet. Maybe they wanted liberation. Sometimes I think, well, something else must be going on that I don't don't understand. So I don't have a good answer for why, but I do know for sure that it's not what God wants for us today. And and I'm personally okay with the tension and the mystery. So the violence aside, there is something going on deeper that's relevant today, a deeper issue. Uh, Kind of like a parable isn't always about the action, but it's about the lesson. Sometimes I read scripture like that, something under the surface. That's what I'm interested in. So Deborah tells his general, her general, to go to war. Here's what happens, verse 8. Barack said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So she's like, he's like, I ain't going to war without you, Deborah. Hey, Debbie, it's not happening. He's like, I I love this because what what a witness to who, what kind of leader Deb was, right? What a witness to the strength and the power of Deborah. He's like, I can't go and lead our armies without you there, without your support, your, without my leader. So here's how she responds, verse 9. I'm going to switch to the NRSV for this one. I think it captures the subtlety of the Hebrew a little bit better. You don't need to know that, but I'm sharing that for transparency. Uh, and she said, quote, I will surely go with you. Great leader, willing to support her general. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Cesera into the hands of a woman. She's like, "All right, I'll go, but know this: if you can't do it by yourself, boy, you won't get the credit for yourself." Okay, what a what a fascinating story about what it means to give someone credit or to get credit, especially as it relates to men and women. Remember, this is three thousand years ago. Have you ever been on a team made up of men and women when it was, and when, when whatever you did was successful, the, the, somehow you know the, the men got more credit for it? Well, as a man who planted a church with his wife, let me tell you. I'm curious, women in the room, does that still happen today? Not every time, not always, but yeah, from what I hear, did men get credit for more than their fair share of the work? Women get overlooked, you can be honest. This story comes three thousand years ago, at least, but it's relevant today as it was then. So much for the you know, that evolutionary theory that things have gotten better. Deborah says, if I come along, then you won't to get the credit, a woman will. And and how equitable is that? She says she's not saying I'll get the credit. She says a woman will get the credit. Someone like me will get the credit, a female. And there's something about those who are often marginalized and pushed aside that they sometimes care less about lifting themselves up and just the bigger picture of lifting everyone up who's like them. And I see that in in the prophet Deborah. She's like, a a woman, I don't necessarily have to get the credit, but but a woman will get the credit. So the prophet Deborah makes it clear, this will be a victory for women going on. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulun and Nepheth, and 10,000 men went up under his command, and Deborah also went with with him and they go to war we're going to skip those passages they fight people die there's a lot of names thrown um this is not even the bloodiest part of the story so for the sake of time we're going to skip it but Barak wins the battle with deborah's help and everyone dies everyone except for the general so Sira, he escapes and you really don't win unless you get the general so sierra gets away he's the leader they need to go after him we'll pick up the story there verse 17 it follows him. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, once again, all these names that are hard to say, because there was an alliance between Jabin King Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. So, the general runs away and finds a family, a tribe, that he isn't at war with, an ally. He, he goes to one of his allies. And the husband, who he might have known or he'd been friends with at some point, he's an ally with him, he wasn't home, but his wife Jael is. And she, he assumes that This is be, you know, this is safe with one of his allies. So verse 18 says this. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered the tent, and she covered him with a blanket. In this story, she's presented right from the start as a mother. Yeah, caring, protective. Oh, come in, young man. And she wraps him in a blanket. And he's like, uh, um, and then from there, uh, he says this, verse 19. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up, you know. These are, these are all words and images related to motherhood. She, she gives him a glass of milk and tucks him in. That's kind of how the Hebrew is. She, like, tucks him in. And it's like, you're, you're going to be okay. We got you now, little man. And she's going to, you know, she's just and he, just making him feel so safe like a mother would. Verse 20. And he says, oh, he's falling asleep, you know. He's tired, he's exhausted, and she's helping him relax, you know. He says, stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is, is a man in there, that's the Hebrew, is a man in there, say no. So he's going to sleep, and he sets her to watch the tent. He feels safe with her. But then, and this is the, the wonderfully horrible moment of the story, verse 21, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. Just kidding. But jail. Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted, and she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. She killed the general no one else could kill, and she'd get credit for it. Verse 22, just then Brock came in pursuit of the general. And Jael went out to meet him, and she said, come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. He can't move. Did you notice it it, it didn't just go through his head, it went into the ground, like, that's an additional detail that, like, we didn't need, but, like, she went that far. We we have some tent stakes stakes that we use to hang these flags, I'm just thinking of that. But um, very, very similar, I imagine. She says, so he went in with her, and there lay Sisera in the tent peg through his temple, dead. And she's just like, see what I did? Pretty cool, huh? Now, this story, uh, violence is presented as good, as epic. Look at what she did. She took down the enemy. She killed the man. You know, she did what a great general couldn't do. Um, We can't pretend that it isn't being presented that way, but that's okay because there's a deeper meaning here. I shared this story with somebody this week, uh, just a random person. I was talking about this woman who, uh, you know, brought somebody, lured somebody into her tent and I hadn't really studied the passage yet, but you know, she brings somebody in and he's sleeping and then she kills him in her sleep. And the person said, oh, is the moral of the story you can't trust women? So I'm just like, that's not funny. Um, I thought about it for half a second and before realizing that no, actually, um, the moral of the story you know, if we can get past the violence and, 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 and all of that, and we read it like somebody maybe who was written for, is that you can trust a woman to get the job done just as much, if not better, than a man. That's the moral of the story. It's okay to say amen. I mean, that's how, the, that's how it's being presented. J.L. is the hero here because a woman, and not just, don't miss this, because a woman in power, this prophet, this leader of Israel, who's also a woman, said she would be. She spoke it into existence for somebody else. Women in leadership, men in leadership, let's wrestle with this. She created space for somebody else. In in killing the general, she said the honor would come to a woman. Killing that general was the honor that they were talking about, whether it was right or wrong. So here, the story. The story is about how powerful women are, especially when they combine their power, when one woman says out loud what is possible for another woman to do. Deborah said the honor would come to a woman, and we can't tell in this story if it was a prophecy or if it was foretelling the future or if it was just went simply wisdom projecting into the future, but she spoke out loud something that needs to be said. Women will get credit for this. And the woman did. With that in mind, there are two lessons I want to share with you as we come to a close that I think are worth considering. There are some big ideas, so I hope you can follow. Here's the first one. Remember that? Talk about the cycles that go in? And book of Judges is just these cycles over and over again. They fall away from God. God delivers them, you know, just over and over again. Well, it's not as simple as this. So one way to think about it is this, Judges just goes like this, the same thing over and over again, chapter after chapter. The same. No, no, no. Here's how the cycles work. They go like this. We're at chapter 4 here, and they start doing this. And even though the cycle keeps going spinning, the overall well-being of Judges gets worse and worse all the way through the book of Judges. Over time, things just get really bad. They continue, but over time, things get where they spiral downward. Over the course of the book of Judges, things get bad. And they're not as bad as they, they're pretty bad at the beginning, but they're not as bad as they could be. They get much worse. In three weeks, we're going to look at a story, Judges chapter 19, second, you know, third to last chapter of the book, things have gotten real bad. And it's a story of an unnamed woman and the violence done against her, and it's not going to be funny. It's hard. I've, I've wrestled with even preaching on it. That's how bad it gets. I bring it up here for this. At the beginning of Judges, when things weren't so bad, not great, but they weren't so bad, we have powerful women in leadership. By the end of Judges, women become victims of terrible violence. And there seems to be a correlation between women and the overall state of Israel. So much so that uh, Dennis T. Olson uh, says uh, he's an Old Testament scholar. He wrote the commentary for the New International Bible commentary. I use it almost every week. Uh, it's a massive, you know, like just, yeah, it's massive. Fills up a shelf he said this um, he wrote the one on judges he said this in the ancient world as well as our own the health and well-being of women provide an important barometer to measure the core health and values of a society or community as the story goes for women in the book of judges so it goes for their community and when women are in charge things aren't so bad when things when they aren't things get worse Women in the book of Judges, their treatment, their positions, their power, their influence, the things that are done against them are all barometers for how the people of Israel are doing. And I would say that it's still true today in every country on this planet. You know, if you want to know how well a country is doing, look at how their women are treated. Look at whether their women are leading. In fact, Forbes magazine put out an article last year regarding COVID. I just think this is great. Couldn't get a better illustration. I'm not going to read the, the whole thing, but I'll read the title. It says this. What do countries with the best coronavirus responses have in common? Women leaders. I don't know. Correlation, causation. can all debate it, but it's interesting. That's the first point. Here's the second point. The second point is that uh, it'll take some explaining, so just stay with me. This story we just read is is in Judges chapter 4. It's not the only place where this story happens in Scripture. The very next chapter, if you open up your Bibles, is Judges chapter 5. It's the exact same story, and it's the only place uh, that this story um, happens but instead of a narrative, it's an epic poem. I'm going to read just a part of it. You know, the climax, you know, the part that that makes it kind of a horrible story, and you can see how it's very different. Judges five twenty four to twenty seven says, "Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent dwelling women. He asked for water, but she gave him milk in a bowl fit for nobles. She brought him curdled milk." Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera and crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. This is chapter five of Judges. Basically the same story, but in really kind of a cool little piece of poetry. I love poetry, so I'm kind of digging it. Now, if you know anything about the history of literature, you can probably guess that the poem is a little older than the narrative version. That's usually how it works. Poetry is some of the oldest form of written language. And in fact, most scholars agree that this poem, this epic song of Judges 5, which tells the same story, was written down and cataloged a long time ago. Here's how Dr. Olson puts it. The song of Deborah and Barak in this chapter is considered by most scholars to be one of the oldest of literature in the Old Testament. So not only is the poem older than the, the other version of the story, it's likely one of the oldest pieces of literature in the Bible. And, and the, the, In other words, the Bible wasn't written uh, all at once. It wasn't written in order. The, like a lot of good movies, they do the origin story after the main events, you know? Like you go back to Genesis. Genesis was written after this, in other words. And so you've got this poem that's one of the oldest pieces of literature ever written. Origins are often used to communicate Intent. We are the way we are because of the way we started. For example, Genesis is often used to teach the role in which women should have in society. They go back to Genesis and say, well, this is what Genesis says about men and women. So this is what it means for women. But think about this. Genesis didn't get written first. It was written later. It was the prequel offered after the fact. This first story to get written down that's still in the Bible is a story of two powerful women leading. What do you think that tells us about God's original intent for women in this world? The story of women leading is the oldest of our Old Testament poems or passages that this story, as old as it is, is about women leading. Once again, I think the point is clear. I am the man I am today because of women who invested in me. Um, Of course, my mom, who's here today, very much uh, uh, a result of my mom and my dad's investment, but, uh, um, but many other spiritual leaders in various workplaces, uh, pastors who are women who invested in me, of course, my wife, uh, who, where we co-founded and planted this church together, uh, other women throughout my life. And you know what? Um, I'm really grateful for the women who lead in our, our, our context, for all the women who've served on our board, for women who serve in staff, for women who are willing to stand up to me and tell me when I'm wrong which is important thing to do because I'm an idiot sometimes. Not most times, but sometimes. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful for all of you. And I really say this, that as, if Central City's is ever deserving, deserving of honor, it will be shared equally with everyone here, not just me, not just Alyssa, but everyone, male and female, gay and straight, old and young, black and white, everyone who's given something to make this church a positive force in the world. And I think that's the point that we all, no matter who you are and where you fit, you have something to offer and you can lead and you can influence and you can change. It doesn't matter what society says about you. It doesn't matter what other Christians say about you. You have the ability to do something amazing. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you uh, thanks. We ask that you would continue to speak to us and through us, that you would uh, show us what it means to love you. That in all of this, we would trust that you are alive and well. That you're able to speak. God, I give you thanks for consistently over the history of your people, the people of Israel and now the church. You have called unlikely people who don't have it all figured out, who maybe society says they should just be quiet, don't talk, don't lead. You call them. And you say, no, I want you to do something. Lord, give us courage. Help us to speak into other lives and create space for people to love and to serve. In your name, amen.